I don't know if it was on purpose or if it was by accident, but they managed to sandwich me between two really good speakers. If you were here last night, you heard an excellent lesson from Neil on grace, um, to which I think we can all say amen. And tomorrow night, uh, Dave is going to be here, and uh, we all know how fine a speaker he is. And then the night after that, I think Wednesday night, I think Neil is back. So uh, suffer along with me tonight, or suffer along as we talk about sacrificial love. Great Bible themes. We've talked about this in Bible class on Sunday morning for many, many, many years. What would you say is the number one theme of the Bible? Crosscuts every, almost every page through every book from Genesis to Revelation. What is the number one theme of the Bible? Do what? Well, the plan of salvation, yes, but that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't do that really doesn't cover everything that's talked about in in the Bible. It's overarching, but it all goes back to one thing. What is that? The love of God. The love of God. The number one theme throughout the whole Bible. Now, the second and third one are a little more difficult, but they're all three part and parcel of what we're going to talk about tonight. What's the second most popular theme? The sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man is the only thing that comes in second behind the love of God. It's the second most, I won't say popular, but it's the second greatest theme in the Bible. And what's the third greatest theme in the Bible? Talked about more than anything else, more than the other, or less than the other two, but still more than any of the others. What would you think? The what? The of well, what had to happen before Christ could return? The death of Christ. It's talked about from Genesis to Revelation. It's in every. It's it's alluded to in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us some, someone is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us someone is here. The remainder of the New Testament tell us someone's coming again. The love of God, the sinfulness of man, the death of Christ. Now there are other themes. Time is short. That's another theme of the Bible, and on we could go. But I want to focus on those three themes tonight in talking about the first and most important one. I want to talk to you about the love of God. It crosscuts every chapter. It crosscuts every book in the Bible. You know John 3.16. It's called the Bible in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Also, don't forget to put in verse 17. It's equally as important because Christ came not to condemn, he came to save. So if we look at John 3.16 as that small, miniature Bible, we see all the greats in the book. For God, the greatest lover, he is love personified. He is the greatest love, the greatest lover. So loved, when God loves, he loves with the greatest love that there can be. For God so loved the world, the greatest number 
of those who could come to God, experience his love, and experience salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave heaven's greatest gift, the gift of his only unique son. This is one of a kind. He's the only son, the only begotten of the Father. We are, we are sons and daughters of God, but we're adopted. Christ is the only unique son of God. That whosoever believeth, the greatest number that could be saved, should not perish. They should not make the greatest mistake, but have everlasting life. The greatest reward that ever could be. And so John 3.16 is one of literally hundreds, if not thousands of verses that tell us about the love of God. But as we go from John 3.16 and all of the verses that talk about love, we then come to the second greatest theme, that man is a sinner. And we only have to open the pages of the Bible to see. 1 John 4.8, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth all the law, for sin is transgression of the law. What about the Old Testament? Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. The Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities... And your sins have separated you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Or Micah 7 verses 3 and 4. They do evil with both hands. The best of them is a briar. We look at the sinfulness of man as recorded in other books of the Bible. They sin more and more. Hosea 13 verse 2. The wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But probably the most descriptive verse in all of Holy Writ, the most descriptive verse on the sinfulness of man, Jeremiah 3.25, we lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Sin is a terrible thing. There are some who would say that when an infant is born, he's born into sin. And if I only had one verse to refute that argument, I'd use Ezekiel 28, verse 15. You were perfect in all your ways, from the day that you were created until sin was found in you. The adverb of time there is until. It's an adverb of time. So you were born sinless until iniquity was found in you. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins, it will die. The son will not bear the iniquity of the father nor the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So what do we know about this God that we serve? We know that God is spirit. And sometimes, oftentimes, I hear people say God is a spirit. 
He's not a spirit. There is no word in the Greek, there is no indefinite article in the Greek to say God is a spirit. God is spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He is, he is incorporeal. He has no viable substance. If he had a tangible body, he could not be omnipotent. He would have to be limited to being one place in time because he is spirit. He fills heaven and earth. God is light, 1 John 1, 5, and in him is no darkness. In scripture, we know that darkness stands for sin, evil, death, and light for holiness, goodness, and life. God is light. He is the sum of everything that is excellent. And God is love, 1 John 4 and 8. It is not simply that God loves. He is love. He is love. Love is merely one of his attributes, is not merely one of his attributes, but love is his very nature. So what do we know about our God? Six things. I'm beginning to sound like Hiram. I have nine things to say, but I'm only going to talk about six. I think I have six. So I'm going to get you out of here quick. I learned from Neil last night how we should run this timing business. I'm not going to keep you an hour and 20 minutes. I've not got that much material. What do we know about the love of God? The love of God is, first of all and foremost, it's limitless. Everything about God is limitless. His essence fills heaven and earth. His wisdom, unlimited. He knows everything about the past. He knows everything about your past. He knew you when you were in your mother's womb. He knows you're getting up and you're lying down. He knows your present. He knows your past. And yes, he knows your future. There's nothing too hard for him. His power is unbounded. So is his love without limit. It is a depth which no one can fathom. It is a measure which cannot be measured, a height that cannot be scaled. Ephesians 2.4 But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us the great there is in parallel to John 3.16, which we just looked at. It tells us that the love of God is so transcendent, it cannot be estimated. No tongue can fully express. Words that I speak or that anyone else speaks from a pulpit, words cannot express the infinitude of God's love. The mind cannot comprehend it. It passes knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. The most extensive ideas that a finite mind can frame about our God and his divine love falls way short. Secondly, God's love is immutable. As with God himself, there is no variation and no shadow of turning. James 1.17. His love does not know change or dilution. Jacob have I loved, declared Jehovah, 
And despite all his unbelief and his waywardness, God never ceased to love him. John 13, 1 finishes or furnishes us with a beautiful illustration. The very night that the apostles would say, show us the Father, one would deny him with cursings, all would be scandalized and forsake him, and nevertheless, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Divine love is subject to no vicissitudes. Divine love is strong as death, and many waters cannot quench it. Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It, it, it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. We are killed all the day long and are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 38, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything present, nor things to come, no height, no depth, no created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. The love of God is immutable. Thirdly, the love of God is holy. God's love is not regulated by passion or sentiment. It's regulated by principle. As Neil pointed out last night, grace reigns not at the expense of it, but through righteousness. Romans 5.21 so his love, you see, never conflicts with his holiness. He is light, and in him is no darkness. He is love, 1 John 4 and 8. God's love displays no weakness or softness. Scripture declares in Hebrews 12, 6, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. God does not wink at sin. Even in his own people, his love is pure, unmixed with any sentimentality. Fourthly, the love of God is free and it's uninfluenced. Nothing, whatever, in the object of his love is ever called into exercise, nothing in the creature to attract it or to prompt it. The love which one creature has for another is because of something in them, but the love of God is free. 
the love we know for our children, the love we know for our wives, for our husbands, the love we have for our friends, is not to be compared with the love of God. God's love is free, spontaneous, and uncaused. The only reason why God loves any is found in his own sovereign will. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor chose you because you were more in number or greater in number than any other people. For you were the fewest and the smallest of all people. But he did so because he loved you. God has loved his people from everlasting to everlasting. And none of us, none of us can be the cause of what was found in God from eternity. He loves from himself, from himself, Second Timothy 1.9, according to his own purpose. We love him because he first loved us. First John 4.19. God did not love us because we loved him first. He loved us before we had a particle of love for him. Had God loved us in return for our love, then it would not be spontaneous on his part because he loved us when we were the most loveless. It is clear that his love is uninfluenced. It is highly important if God is to be honored and the heart of his child established, then we should be quite clear in this, in this precious truth. God's love for me, God's love for you, and for each of his own, is entirely unmoved by anything in them. What was there in me, what was there in you, that made God love you? Couldn't be your goodness. It certainly couldn't be the darkness that you came out of. What was it? What was it that made God love you? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. On the contrary... Humans give God every reason to be repelled by us and our sinful natures. Everything calculated to make him loathe me, loathe me. Everything that makes me loathsome. Sinfulness, the depravity of man, the massive corruption. There's no good thing in me, no good thing in you. But God loves you from everlasting. Fifth, God's love is eternal. This is of necessity. God himself is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he is love personified. He is love. So just as God has no beginning... His love has no beginning. His love has no end. Granted, such a concept far transcends the grasp of feeble minds. Nevertheless, where we cannot comprehend, we can only bow. How clear is the testimony of Jeremiah 31 and verse 3? I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. How blessed it is to know 
that the great and holy God loves his people before heaven and earth were called into existence, that he had his heart set upon them from all eternity. Clear proof is this, that the love he has for us is spontaneous, for he loved them endless ages before they were beings. He loved you before you were even known. And he will continue to love you through eternity. The same precious truth is set forth in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the earth. That we should be holy and without blame before him. In love having predestinated us. What praise then should this evoke from his children? How tranquilizing for the heart. Since now we know and have known for many years that God's love toward us, toward each one of us, has no beginning. And it has no end. Since it can be true that from everlasting to everlasting he is God, and since God is love, then it's equally true that from everlasting to everlasting he loves his people. Finally, the love of God is gracious. And we come full circle back to what Neil was talking about last night. Love the, God, the love and the grace of God. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. It was interesting to me last night as Neil spoke that I could see there's no division between the love of God and the grace of God. They're inseparable. This is clearly brought out in Romans 8. Verse 32, 39, which I just read for you a few minutes ago. What that love is from which there can be no separation is easily perceived from the design and the scope of the immediate context. It is the goodwill and the grace of God which determined him to give that sacrificial offering of his son. That love was the impulsive power of God's incarnation. God so loved the world. God so loved, insert your name. He loved you that much that if you were the only person who had ever walked the face of the earth and you sinned, Christ would have died for you. And Paul says that very thing. He said, he loved me and he died for me. That's a very personal. It was very personal with Paul. Christ did not die in order to make God love us. He did not die in order to make God love us, but because he loved his people. Calvary, then, is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you're tempted to doubt the love of God, put your eyes on the cross. And remember him hanging between heaven and earth. The love of God. The sinfulness of man. Come together in the cross. As God reaches down. To pull us up. Out of the quagmire of sin. By sacrificing his only unique son. And for me. When you have cause to doubt. When your faith flags. When your faith fails. 
don't take your eyes off the cross. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, Jesus said. And in those moments, in those hours that he hung upon that tree, suspended between heaven and earth, he loved you. He loved me. He loved the whole world. And he gave himself for all of us. When you're tempted to doubt the love of God, go back to Calvary. Here then is our cause for trust and our cross for patience and our and our cause for patience when we're afflicted as Christians. Christ was beloved of the Father. Yet when he came here, he was exposed to poverty, disgrace, persecution. He was hungry, he was thirsty. He was everything that a man and woman can be today. Yet he did it without sin. The incomparable love of God demonstrated in Christ, for me at least, was when he permitted men to spit on him and to lash him and to nail him to a tree. For me. Let no Christian ever call into question God's love when he brought his son through painful affliction and trial. He did not send his son to the earth for temporal prosperity, but he gave him the spirit without measure. We know that Christ did not have a place to lay his head, but he completed his divine mission of salvation. He had the spirit without measure, John 3:34 tells us. And the lesson that we need to learn tonight is that all spiritual blessings are the principal gifts of God's divine love. And how blessed we should be to know that when this world hates us, God loves us with a love that's everlasting. Can we repay his love? Can we, can we do what we need to do? Jesus said, if you love me, to keep my commandments. His commandments are not harsh, not burdensome. We talked on Sunday morning about obedience. Obedience in the obedience in the world is a dirty word. But Christians must strive to be obedient. And we'll fall and we'll fail. But if you never take your eyes off the cross, you'll be able to stand tall again. Through prayer through asking for forgiveness as you walk in the light day after day until your walk is done. The love of God, the sinfulness of man, the death of Christ. That's all I have, Neil. Everybody gets out early tonight and get back out to the snow cone mobile. Can I start one more song? Sure. Right. Yeah, what we want. Jared?